So the title for this evening's talk is The Invisible Judge. In my years of teaching, uh, when I hear people's motivation for coming to uh, spiritual practice, to retreats, there are often a number of different motivations. Um, however, one that I hear a lot is um, some underlying tone that there is something lacking in oneself. There's some sense of needing to be better than or, or improved upon um, some uh, you know, more complete model than the one that they're showing up with. This motivation is fine because it gets people on the path and gets people to retreats. However, if this one, too, isn't let go of, then at some point it becomes a hindrance to the evolution of the spiritual path. This is what I want to look into tonight, how this is actually a hindrance for us if we are holding this belief or this assumption and it's likely that many of us are because this kind of belief is very insidious in our consciousness when we think of ourselves as small or separate or uh, isolated in some way from the rest of the world. A few weeks ago, I was uh, teaching at Spirit Rock in California. I had the um, opportunity and the great blessing of teaching a loving-kindness retreat uh, uh, with two of my colleagues. And as I mentioned earlier today, a loving-kindness retreat is not an insider of a Vipassana retreat, but it's a retreat in which people are practicing the um, repetition of phrases for the uh, four Brahma Viharas, actually. We do all four Brahma Viharas um, on the retreat. And it, it, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, it's really a, um, an incredible opportunity because, because people are practicing the loving kindness so intently. Truly, there is a, a force field that gets developed there where after some days, you really do feel quite tangibly this very beautiful environment of love and connection and knowing that each individual there is generating this uh, love towards themselves and outwardly in a very boundless way. And it's very inspiring and uh, I just really enjoy doing that, teaching those retreats so much and being in that uh, field of, of love, really. But I, I get a little bit suspicious at the same time because I think it's a bit of a setup. Um, the meta practices, uh, spiritual practices as well, do have such a, a beautiful vision for what's possible as human beings. When we practice the loving kindness, we do loving kindness retreats, there really is this, this hope and this possibility and expectation for really experiencing boundless states of consciousness. And what can happen I think that the more beautiful the vision is and the more beautiful uh, one has in terms of what's possible, it can create this gap 
sometimes a really big gap <laughs> between the spiritual vision for what's possible on, on the path and for us as human beings and where we find ourselves. You know, so we have this, we see what the teachings are and what's being offered of liberation and boundless states of consciousness and um, the open heart and connection and the possibility of, of, of merging into a non-separate existence and the interconnection with all things. And then we look back at what's sitting here and we think, maybe for a lot of other people, but I can't see this one getting very far. You know, look at me. You know, I can't keep my mind quiet. You know, my body's a mess. I have pain. I can't sit still. I have all kinds of doubt. I, I walk around really feeling hostile towards the other people on the retreat. You know, when I do the loving kindness, it just makes me more angry and more contracted. And, and we can just feel this huge separation between the goal or the um, possibility on the path and where we are, where we're sitting. And in that, in creating that gap, there's so much possibility for self-rejection and for self-judgment and condemnation and doubt and, and criticizing and comparing. And sometimes that doesn't get seen. There's a, there's a sense of knowing that it's right. <laughs> I am this person who I think I am, you know, and there's no way I'm going to get anywhere on this path. So there's, when the self-judgment, the self-criticism, criticism isn't actually taken in fully into the mindful awareness, we can use it as a way to actually perpetuate that sense of ourself that feels so separate, that feels so isolated, that feels so cut off. And it's not being seen. On the retreat, this uh, loving-kindness retreat, um, one of the morning questions was asked of one of the teachers there. And the question was, um, who, I thought these teachings were pointing to no self or not self, but when we do the metta practice, it seems like we keep sending it back to ourself and we keep reinforcing the sense of ourself. So I don't really get where the metta practice fits on the spectrum of what these teachings are pointing to. And so Sally, the teacher who was answering the question, answered it very well and very rightly and said, that yes, the loving-kindness practice is a relative practice. It's not an ultimate or an absolute practice. It's a, a practice that does uh, encourage the opening and the, and the ease and the comfort and the well-being of the sense of self so that once one is in that place of feeling more at ease, there is more likelihood of reaching those boundless states. It was so interesting. My, my, I was sitting there listening, and I, I just noticed this kind of this contraction again in my, my body. And I thought to myself, who would want to do a relative practice? You know, it means that, you know, here we are, we're not ready yet, you know, for the boundless, you know, the, the uh, not-self, the, uh, you know, the absolute, the ultimate 
emptiness teachings, you know, we're sitting here doing the relative practices. You know, of course, of course I want the boundless states. You know, I want that which is going to take me there right now. You know, it's so interesting that I, I wondered, you know, whether other people were having that similar response. But I could see, again, how, how there could be the tendency for a little bit of a setup. There was a, a person who I was doing some work with once who was, who was saying to me, you spiritual teachers, you know, or people who are on the spiritual path, you want to go to the, from the first floor to the fourth floor. You want to bypass the second and the third floor. You don't want to really get into the stuff. You don't want to get into the darkness. You don't want to get into the shadow stuff. You just want to get into those high states of consciousness, which I think is true. I think that there is some danger some potential danger of the lure of what's possible on the spiritual path. It's very easy to, and I've seen it so often, I've seen it myself, I've seen it in so many practitioners, where there can be what now actually even has a fancy uh, terminology of spiritual bypassing. (laughs) Spiritual bypassing. I'm not even really quite sure who coined that, but I'm sure it's only the last few years, you know, where we use these practices as a way to avoid, to escape, to not have to deal with um, some of the very important issues that need to be looked at within ourselves. If we're not really seeing this tendency to want to get out of where we're at, and we don't see the way that we are sometimes subtly, not so subtly, judging or criticizing ourselves and our practice. We don't actually see that we are engaged in a subtle form of aggression towards ourselves, and sometimes not so subtle form of aggression. And by not seeing the way that we set up standards and expectations and ideals and uh, judgments and criticisms. When we don't see the, the aggression or the uh, anger, the, the, the aversion in that, we keep perpetuating it. And this is how it becomes a hindrance for us, a barrier for the ability to really let go. I know this very well. I know it very well from my own practice. I had a very idealistic practice for a long time of where I thought I should be on the path right now, you know, what I thought was possible for me right now, and then I would keep (laughs) getting disappointed (laughs) when I would see the reality of where I was at. And I think it was, you know, quite some years, I think maybe even 10 years or so into my meditation practice before I realized that I was also a human being, just like everybody else, who had a lot of issues just like everybody else. Somehow I did have the idea, and I don't know where I got it, but that somehow I was different, that I was in some kind of specialized category, that because I had come to the spiritual path, and so many people hadn't, that that already put me (laughs) into a special category that made me different, that somehow 
I was going to achieve certain states of consciousness and insight and understanding that a lot of other people weren't going to achieve. And it was really quite astounding when I started realizing that I was in a human body. <laughs> I can't I really express to you the kind of the shock of that over the over the years as I started coming more and more fully into myself as a human being and who I am, who I really am, and what that then began to open up for me. I think that really was the, the ma- a major turning point in my practice. I remember on one uh, uh, three-month, I think I was on one of my three-month retreats at the Insight Meditation Society, and I was um, really having a rough time and feeling tremendous amounts of agitation in my body, lots of agitation. I was uh, feeling a lot of fear around my teachers going into the interviews with the teachers and relationship to the teachers. I was, there were a number of my friends on the retreat as there is here and I remember feeling so much hatred towards my friends. You know, just hating my friends, you know, criticizing them, you know, you know, the way that they're practicing, oh, he's just showing off, you know. And who does he think he is anyhow, you know, sitting for an hour, sitting for an hour and 15 minutes, you know, he's just a big show-off. And all this judgment and all this real hatred, which I, I was very, very surprised. I didn't know where it was coming from or why I was feeling that way. And, of course, I was also having a lot of sublime and insightful and, you know, wonderful, wonderful experiences in my meditation. And I was... And I could see how I was just setting up this very um, major duality in my practice. Like all those experiences, all those mind states that were unpleasant and I didn't want to know that I could manifest like that, I didn't want those. And I was like, oh no, what's that? But then, of course, the sublime and the lovely and the easy and the vast... (laughs) expansive, open states of mind. Yes, I want that. I want that. And I could just see how I was bouncing, really, between my uh, preferences of what I wanted and what I didn't want in my practice and in myself. And it was taking time, taking time in my practice before I could really start to integrate how to work with all of that so I could see it. I could really see what I was doing, what I was setting up for myself. It's very easy to use these difficult mind states that arise as criteria to judge oneself and to judge one's practice. And, and there's a sense of, of that it's right. Of course I shouldn't be like this, or it shouldn't be like this, or that something's wrong with me. I'm doing so badly. Um, I'm off track. I'm not where I should be in my practice. And really, the fixing of you, of myself, around those experiences and, and building up an identity, an image of who I am without actually seeing how I'm continuing to solidify and reinforce that sense of myself, a sense of self. Somehow that gets, that process gets hidden from view, hidden from consciousness until it's really seen, until it's seen well and it's seen clearly. When I think I'm doing so badly, 
when I think things are wrong, then I, I have more of a sense of urgency of how much work I have to do and how much improvement I have to do and, and, and then the feeling of doubt about who I am and where I am and it sets this whole ball into motion. I wonder if you at times see this creeping in to your practice, this, this tendency to, to use what you see in your experiences to um, turn back on yourself and create some kind of view about who you are and how it just gets, gets hidden from any kind of insight or awareness of that it's, that it's not true, that it's not true. I've discovered over the years, and, I, and it's becoming even more clear, it's really astounding how this piece is becoming so clear in my mind, that we cannot be mindful and inquire into that which we cannot accept. If there isn't the acceptance, if there isn't the okayness of something that's arising within our minds, within our hearts, within our bodies, we will try to push it out of consciousness. We'll try to hide it. We'll try to do anything we can not to see it. And so, therefore, it cannot be worked with. It cannot be looked into. It cannot be given the attention that's required in order for it to be freed, for it to be released from our being. It stays stuck. We stay caught in that particular identification we stay caught in that particular facet of our personality. Self-judgment, or, or that in some ways it's also fear, fear of who we, who we think we are, it becomes a, a, a barrier, kind of a, a veil over consciousness so that it stays hidden. We, we can't see. It stays submerged somehow in, in consciousness. And so we're not able to, we, keep, we find we keep moving or acting or uh, uh, behaving out of those, those hidden beliefs, those hidden judgments, and really don't understand where some of the pain is coming from, where some of our inner distress is coming from. Acceptance really is the very first step in our path, in our process. We need to come into acceptance with what is happening within our mind, within our body, within our heart. We need to come into acceptance. And when I say that it's the first step on the path, it doesn't mean it's like we come into acceptance and then we did that one and then we move on. (laughs) The first step means that each time we circle around into new territory, which is what's happening all the time on the spiritual path, we're constantly uncovering new aspects of ourselves. then acceptance needs to be the first thing that we apply to our experience. Making what's happening okay. It's okay. It's okay. My, one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, he has a lovely habit of, when I'm sitting with him, usually coming up with these very deep and profound um, 
mantras for us. And one time uh, I was sitting with him and he said, you know, I've got a, a, a very profound mantra for you. I want you to practice. This is what it is. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Just that. <laughs> it's okay. <clears throat> Joko Bat, one of the Zen teachers, one of the great Zen teachers, said, um, uh, to live a life without judgment is what a realized life is like. To live a life without judgment is what a realized life is like. For a long time, because I have done a lot of work with judgment, with self-judgment, and I thought that I got to a place where I, I really had a handle on it. Like, okay, I, I could really see the way the judgments were rising in my mind, and I could bring a lot of kindness to myself and to my process, and, and I could note the judgments and not really identify so much with the judgments, and really felt like I had got quite far with it. And so I kind of came to the view that uh, that's something that beginners work with. You know, it's a part of the, it's a beginning stage on the spiritual path. Any <laughs> um, time you make a conclusion about something, <laughs> you're bound to be, uh, discover that actually it's not like you think it is. I find that to be true again and again and again. Because in the last year or so, it's amazing the kind of judgments that have been arising in my mind that I'd never seen before. I mean, they very much have been hidden from my view. Um, I'll just tell you about um, this uh, experience about at the beginning of this year. I uh, went to Florida, which is where my mother lives. I try to go and visit her at least once or twice a year if I can. And this year, um, I coordinated my trip with my 25-year-old niece and her husband and their new eight-month-old baby. It was her first baby. And I don't get so much of a chance to be with my niece, and in this case, my great-niece as well. And I was very, very happy to be able to spend, we had eight days together in this uh, fifth-floor condominium a two-bedroom condominium, um, all of us, <laughs> um, including the baby. <laughs> um, I haven't, I don't have my own children. And I haven't spent a lot of time around babies. But what I learned is that um, at that age, at least, they pretty much dictate the whole schedule. <laughs> um, so here we were, the um, five of us together for eight days, and we weren't really doing a lot. We were just pretty much in this, in this uh, condominium together. And um, fortunately, we all got along pretty well. And I really loved being with my great niece and having that kind of quality time day after day to be with this ra radiant, beautiful uh, baby and seeing what a wonderful mother my niece is and her my nephew, uh, it was just really a joy. But I, was, I, I wasn't doing any kind of 
spiritual practice. <laughs> I wasn't sitting in the mornings. I wasn't doing my yoga. I wasn't having Dharma conversations. Um, my mother still doesn't know, after 25 years, what I do for a living. She, 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 keeps, she keeps asking me. She says, what am I supposed to tell people that you do? <laughs> I think every time I see her, she asks me that. And I say, well, Mom, you know, I teach meditation. And, you know, she says, okay, yeah. And then sometimes I'll try to get her to follow her breath and to have some sense of that. And then... You know, see her again, and she'll say, uh, "What are you doing? <laughs> Where are you going? And why do you travel so much? And how come you don't stay home more?" And you know, so um, it was, so it wasn't as if it was a dharmic, you know, or spiritual eight-day household. <laughs> you know, here we were just being very ordinary together, and and it was it was very lovely. And I noticed that. Um, I'm not sure so much whether it creeped in while I was there, but when I got home, I started wondering to myself, hmm, I wonder if they could actually tell that I've been meditating for 25 years. <laughs> there must have been some way that I would show up that was different than the way they would show up. They haven't been meditating for 25 years. They don't do spiritual practices. They don't have insights into the way things are in this existence. You know, I do. <laughs> so there must be some, you know, something should be different about me. <laughs> I wonder if they noticed. <laughs> and it was very interesting to start to pay attention to that. You know, to watch that kind of a dialogue, where is that coming from? And what I understand now that I'm looking a little bit more into this, I don't know if you're aware of the uh, uh, psychological phrase of, of superego. The superego, according to the, psychological, the Western psychological traditions, is that part of our psyche that is sort of the, the dictator of how we're supposed to be in the world, how we're supposed to function in the world, how we're supposed to show up in the world. So what I realize is that people who are on spiritual paths and who are deeply involved in meditation and, and inquiry somehow start to build up this spiritual superego. And then we start to, and I've seen it, I see it, I see that I'm not the only one, and I see it actually quite a lot, where the ego, because it's still intact, <laughs> starts to identify with a whole new set of values, a whole new set of images, a whole new set of ideas of how we're supposed to be in the world, how I'm supposed to be in the world, whatever that is. It is all we could list a, you know, we could all make a huge list right now if I. Uh, if we started collectively to say, okay, this would be on the list, this would be on the list, this, this is how we're supposed to show up. One of them is not to be angry, you know, as, especially as Buddhists. As Buddhists, you don't get angry. <laughs> you know, equanimity is on the list. <laughs> you don't react, you don't get ruffled, calm, equanimous, everything's okay, flexibility, like water off a duck's back, you know, but you don't react. 
Mm. That's on the list. <laughs> but there's an interesting way, because there, the ego is still pretty much intact, that it starts to build a new identity. Only in this case, it's a nicely intact spiritual identity. Now, we know that the ego, ego can build an identity around anything. You know, you just name it, and then there's the ego. You know, whether it's a you know good lover, or you know you know very professional career person, or a good mother, or caretaker, or uh, we can we can even have a nice identity around um, emotional wreck. You know, <laughs> you know anything. You know, or you know very weak and sickly in our life, or you know any kind of formation of identity around that. So I was getting some insight into my spiritual superego and how it's like the sense of, well, did they notice? Do people notice? I mean, I was, I was feeling so ordinary. I wasn't feeling extraordinary. I was just present and connected and very happy to be there, feeling very uh, uh, receptive and, and caring. But is that enough? (laughs) Like, is that enough? Isn't there supposed to be some, you know, some kind of aura, or (laughs) you know, some healing aura? You know that everybody who comes into my 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 uh, field is touched by this light and this transmission. I mean, isn't it (laughs) the mind? You know what the mind creates. Truly. What do we have to do to be spiritual, really? I mean, this whole concept of spiritual, what does it mean anyhow? What does it really mean when we look at it? And what do we have to do? Or who do we have to be to really start to touch the essence of what these teachings are pointing to? I wonder, truly, if we have to be anything or any way other than the way we are. Truly, (laughs) the way we are. I really can trust now that this is enough. This is enough. And it's only that idea creates that barrier or shell, almost a shell. We can almost feel like that it's something that actually becomes an obstacle or a a hindrance to really being able to feel our spirit the essential expression of our being. What, why, why would it take anything other than being who we are to be truly spiritual when we really understand the depths of that insight and that knowing?
Hamid Ali, this teacher I'm working with now in the Diamond Heart uh, Ridwan School in California, this wonderful uh, quote. He says, Realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. Realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. That really speaks to me. Because then it really points to where the problem is. (laughs) It's not that we have to come into any particular state of perfection. Become become build up into something that we are not, which then we call some state of perfection. But it's pointing to the anxiety that is present when we look back and see who we are and we say, it's not okay. It's not okay. It's not that we have to throw out the aspirations, the vision that is being pointed to in these teachings, because clearly there is something that is being pointed to. It does does seem, and according to the teachings, and, and, and there is a path, that there is somewhere to move towards. And so we have aspirations for ourselves and aspirations in the teachings like loving kindness. When we say, um, one of the phrases that were offered today, may I love and accept myself just as I am. This is one of the ones we are working with today. And, and that's a beautiful aspiration for us. And, and these aspirations have a place, they have a usefulness, they have a function. But the question really is for us, how do we hold these beautiful visions and aspirations of the teachings and also hold the present truth about who we are at the same time so that these aspirations don't turn into some kind of expectation or ideal about who we should be right now and then we turn that against ourselves and reject, reject ourselves and hurt ourselves through those expectations. But that we hold the aspirations and we hold the truth. The truth. We see the truth, who I am right now in my limited sense of myself. And we're able to be there with that. And yet it, it, it seems that these aspirations can so easily create this gap that I was talking about earlier. We have this, well, you know, that's out there and I'm here and there's this huge gap. And sometimes it can seem like a great abyss and we, it's so big and so deep that we fall right into it and then we tumble down and feel depressed and despairing and doubting and 
we feel the hurt and the pain and the anger and the irritation, the frustration, the self-hatred, all that just starts to gather in that abyss. But there, it doesn't have to be a large gap. It doesn't have to be a large abyss. There is a way to bridge that, to hold those beautiful aspirations and the truth of who I am right now in this moment. There is a way to bridge that. And the way to bridge that is to hold both with love. To hold both with kindness and respect. That becomes the bridge for us. Nisargadatta Maharaj, one of the crazy wisdom masters in India of this century, said, the mind creates the abyss and the heart crosses it. Isn't that the truth? (laughs) It's only the mind, only the mind that creates the abyss. But at any moment, any moment, the possibility and the potential to access our heart is right there. To draw on the love that is right there. By just turning our mind for a moment towards the okayness towards the the care towards the gentleness all the while looking at the truth not sidestepping <laughs> or avoiding but looking directly at the truth of who we are and then bringing all of the love forth that we possibly can to carry us along the way. And that means looking at the truth of every part of ourself. <laughs> every part. That's, that's the, the beauty and the potency of this practice is that we get that big flashlight, that big torch of awareness out, and we look in every corner, every closet, (laughs) under every piece of furniture, (laughs) to see where things are hiding from us, so that we can bring them to the light and liberate them. This is a... on in an enlightenment poem from a 10th century uh, great Japanese woman poet, Izumi Shikubi. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. I knew myself completely, no part left out.
So this is our practice. You know, we, we use that word in this tradition, you know, that we're practicing. And we use that word practice, which for a while I never liked because I thought, well, I'm not practicing. You know, I'm here right in this moment. So I'm not going anywhere. I'm not doing anything. I'm just right here. So I'm not practicing. But that's, you know, um, we call that um, a kind of a, a, a shuffle. Like a, in, there's one tradition called Advaita, which has a lot of shuffles in it, you know, kind of flips different ways of looking at things. And we call these things an Advaita shuffle, like we're just kind of getting out of the, the truth. But the truth is that there is somewhere that we're going. There is a practice that we're doing. We're not fully liberated human beings yet. So we practice. And we see what we're doing as a practice. Not that we should be fully enlightened right in this moment. Or maybe a better and more accurate way of saying it is that we, shouldn't nece- we don't necessarily need to recognize that we are fully enlightened in this moment. Because the truth are we are fully enlightened in this moment, but we don't recognize it when we come into that fully liberated state of being, we will find that actually not a lot has changed. (laughs) Which is one of the disappointments of the number of disappointments that happen on the path. But our practice at the moment is this acceptance that we are where we are right now. We shouldn't be anywhere else than where we are. And in fact, that you are the very best you can be right now. You're the very, very best you can be right now. How can it be any different? Just, it can't be any different. So we keep resting into the simplicity of justice resting back into the ordinariness of justice. So ordinary, so simple. Whatever it is, whether it's difficult, anxiety, fears, anger, irritation, restlessness, whether it's calm, tranquility, happiness, ease, doesn't matter. It's all truth. And it's all your truth, whatever it is. So the practice brings us right into truth, here and now. And the more that we touch into the ordinariness of our being, then something extraordinary shines through. That's really where we find the magic. I'd like to end with a poem that I love to read. There's some poems I love to read on retreat, and some of you have heard this. It's called Love After Love by Derek Walcott. And I really think it describes this turning that happens as we walk this path. 
The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you have ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your life. Let's sit quietly for a minute or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.